Hey everyone, welcome to Rajit Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. Yeah, the post-permission world, I like that phrase. I think in terms of there being types of founders, glory seekers, freedom seekers, I would squarely put indie hackers in the freedom seekers category. I ask people, I actually stopped asking most people on the podcast why they're doing what they're doing, because the answer is so often freedom that it just began to get stale. And there's not just one kind of freedom. We think of freedom, we think of, oh, I don't have to have a boss. But there are other types of freedom too that come with not having a boss and that come with starting your own company. So to list them off, there's financial independence. This generally, I think, represents itself in people's desire for there not to be any sort of ceiling and I guess no floor either to how much money they can make. So if you work at a company, you have a well-defined job title, you you went to school to get the skills to work in that job, what ends up happening is you become commoditized as an employee. And when you're commoditized, what happens is you can't charge for your services what they're actually worth because there will always be somebody who can undercut you. If you're a software engineer and you're making Google $10 million a year, you can still only charge a couple hundred thousand dollars a year for your services because they can just fire you and hire another replacement software engineer. Whereas indie hackers often see this as unfair and want the freedom to basically be able to make as much money as they're worth. And it's really hard to do that in a traditional career. And so people try to start their own company. So there's financial independence, not being dependent on a particular company, not being dependent on something else. I think scalability also plays in the financial independence where people don't want their income to be tied into their time. They want to free up their time and still be able to generate income. And again, like this is something that most companies aren't going to allow you to do if you're an employee. Sometimes you can get equity as a startup. Yeah, that's like one mechanism to do that. But generally, companies want to pay for your labor, your work, your continued time. And on your own, especially with a scalable internet business, you can free up your time. So again, freedom by generating revenue passively. And so most indie hackers are software engineers who want to build SaaS applications that can continue working in the background and providing a service while they're asleep or they're on vacation. Mm-hmm. But increasingly, indie hackers are also dabbling in media content, which is also scalable, just like software is, and mm-hmm. can continue to be sold uh, and read and consumed by other people uh, while you're asleep or on vacation or whatever. And then there are other digital products as well that are also pretty scalable. That's one sort of family mm-hmm. of freedom that indie hackers seek. There's also time, uh, creative freedom. So just the ability to choose what you work on. I think this is one that will become increasingly popular. And this will feed into like your sort of second question about lifestyle design. But just des- deciding what you're going to work on, deciding who you're going to work with, deciding like how often you're going to work. I think all of these fall into the category of lifestyle design. And people really want, in a way, it's freedom. If you have a job, like you just don't get to decide what you're going to work on. Someone's going to tell you what to work on. And when you run your own company, you can decide what you're going to work on. And maybe that's not the most profitable thing, but maybe like it gives you some other sort of creative kick or happiness because you're doing what you want to do. Same with like your, your coworkers. If you right. have a job, maybe being nepotistic is a terrible idea because it's not hiring the best person for the job. But if you've got a company and you're the one in control of it, maybe you want to hire your siblings or your friends because you just want to be surrounded by community. And you want your, your company to affect like not just your customers and not just you, but like the people who you love and know and work mm-hmm. together with them. So there's a lot of, I think, freedom that people want to have that makes them indie hackers. And they tend to prioritize this above glory. That doesn't mean they don't care about glory. In fact, there's a lot of indie hackers I talk to who start off indie. And once they hit a certain revenue number and they feel like they've gotten what they wanted, they realize, oh, like, actually, I do want glory. <laughs> the next step, the next rung on the ladder for me is I do want to build something that's as big as possible, go for the next goal even if it's less about the money and it's more about just like always having a nice challenge to work on. Whereas some other indie hackers I talk to are like, nope, I made it. Like it's time to retire on a beach 
or it's time to keep just doing what I'm doing at the certain same level that I'm doing it. Uh, so a good example of that would be like Peter Levels, who I was just talking to yesterday. He's grown his remote worker targeted products to a ton of revenue to the point where he's like very completely financially free. He can do whatever he wants and doesn't have any goal of pushing forward to some like next revenue milestone, raising money, building out a big team. Like he likes how it is now. He doesn't want to shake things up. And mm-hmm. he really just wants to start like more small indie products from scratch because that's what he likes doing. And he's free to do that because no one's telling him what to do. So again, he's like chasing like this freedom to do what he likes to do more so than he's chasing glory. So again, mm-hmm. that kind of answers uh, the last question you asked, but it also I think feeds into the question about lifestyle design. Mm-hmm. I have a yeah. few extra things to say about lifestyle design. You want to jump in? Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask one thing about, I, I guess it's more of an observation than a question, yeah. but just reading Paul Graham and then looking what he said, right? That's one of his biggest arguments to start a startup or join a startup is just to get paid in accordance with the value that you provide totally. your company. And so it's just interesting that you, because I, I talk to some people and they see the Y Combinator or the startup area, anti-indie hacker or, or not similar. And it seems that's not necessarily the case is that it's an entrepreneur, but maybe a different kind of entrepreneur in the sense that they're still looking for that. But yeah, as, as you mentioned, yeah. Yeah. They're not too dissimilar. At the end of the day, they're like, whenever you take any two things and you eliminate every other option and you hold them in like opposition, they look super crazy different, right? You take a modern day Republican in America versus a modern day Democrat, like it's going to look like they're two different people. But if you like look at them in the entire arc of history, it's like actually compared to an ancient Roman, these two Americans look like they agree on almost everything. And we've just really amplified their differences. I think it's the same thing with indie hackers versus like high growth startup founders. It's generally speaking, these are almost all ambitious, self-motivated people who really value freedom, who value money, who value status, who value creativity, who value just creating and building things, who have a high bias towards action. There's like a ton of similarities. Uh, a lot of them are like unemployable, don't like having a boss. And then we can pick around the edges. Okay, what's really different here? So I don't think there's that much difference. I don't think it's that shocking that I went through YC and then started Indie Hackers. But there are some differences and that's why there are two different terms. Specifically on the topic of like lifestyle design and even on Paul Graham recommendations, like he talks about almost the deferred life plan in his blog. So he talks about how you can compress years, decades uh, worth of work into a startup and it's really hard, but then you can buy a lifetime of financial freedom after that, which I think of as like this get rich, retire to a beach. Now, most people don't want to retire to a beach, even in high growth startup land, but that's the idea that it's like a few years of extreme misery and then <laughs> you're done. The problem with this that I think a lot of indie hackers have and that I have is that why do you want to have any years of misery when you can instead build a business that, yeah, maybe it grows more slowly than everything else, but what's the rush? Even people I know who started really big companies and end up super rich end up just starting more companies in the future. And it doesn't really make that much sense for a lot of people to to run a business in a way that's super stressful, that's going to put them over the edge where they feel like they need to grow, they're going to die. And I think any hacker businesses are just easier, a little bit more stable. And so if you're trying to go for a billion dollar valuation, if you're taking on a lot of money from investors who are pushing you to grow, you're going to be inherently unstable because your team's always going to be growing. If your growth ever stops, your investors are going to lose interest and it's going to feel like a failure. You're always going to be building the rocket ship on the way up. And that's not a position that a lot of people like to be in, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. It's, It's very stressful. Even when you're doing really well, the risk that next year, next month, the growth is going to stop, you're going to plateau, is ever present when you have a high growth startup. It's just always there. And most companies like aren't able to sustain that to the billion dollar valuation that your investors want you to get to. It's just pretty rare. And so if you have an indie hacker company, a sort of trade-off is, okay, you're going to grow more slowly because you're not taking on these extra funds, but you're going to grow more steadily because you're reinvesting your profits for the most part. And you're almost always comfortable. And it doesn't actually take that long to get to the point where you actually get most of the freedom, where you're actually like pretty rich 
and you don't have to work that hard. And then if you want to, you always have the option of raising money anyway. So mm-hmm. I think that is like one of the bigger differences. I think what's interesting as well is the dynamics of technology and how they're affecting society. Specifically, they are enabling more people to start these kinds of businesses who previously would not have. And so if you think of like an arms, any sort of arms race, you think of like a, a poisonous snake and like a honey badger. The honey badger gets bit by the snake. Some die, some survive. They, like the ones who survive have like stronger poison resistance. And then the snakes, you know, have to, the ones who basically don't have strong poison can't eat. So it's just a cycle where after 10,000 years, you have just like these extremely poisonous snakes and these extremely resistant honey badgers. And it never really goes anywhere. It just, just gets more and more extreme. I think the same thing mm-hmm. happens with technology where you have all sorts of like new platforms and programming languages and frameworks and even ancillary to that, like, pro- like programs like Y Combinator and things like Indie Hackers and resources to learn from and books to read and Twitter accounts to follow that will teach you. That just make it all, all of it comes together to make it way easier to start a company. And what you would think is, okay, the result of this is just more people will start companies and that'll be that. But actually what happens is not only do more people start companies, but like different types of people start companies. People who previously would have said, oh, this is way too much commitment for me. I'm just going to work a job. Or now, you know what? Actually, this is like right about the level of commitment that I could do. And then once they start companies, they start demanding for even faster tools, and even better frameworks, and even more resources because they're maybe doing a side hustle. And maybe they don't have a bunch of free time in that. Whereas all the, pre- like the founders from 10 years ago could spend 24-7 working on their startup because they were willing to raise money and quit their jobs. These new breeds of founders are often like trying to compress their entire startup life until, I don't know, a few hours a day, a few hours a week even. And so there's always like an increasing demand for faster tools and better tools, et cetera. So I think that that demand in turn sort of fuels the cycle and you get more and more people. So I think what I'm trying to say here is that ultimately what we're seeing is a whole new breed of people becoming founders who just are people who prioritize lifestyle a lot more than the old breed of founders. The old breed of founders were all super hardcore, sort of crazy <laughs> glory uh, seekers. And now there's a lot of people, because the tools have enabled them to get into the game, who actually really do care about family and free time and lifestyle. And so it's like becoming a bigger priority for people to do lifestyle design. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is one thing I think it's just not... We haven't seen anywhere near what we're going to see in the future. But I think that uh, what people don't quite understand is that like your business actually is like a really good vehicle for whatever lifestyle you want to do. So let's say you wanted to talk to really interesting, smart people all the time. And that's the life that you wanted to live. You could start a podcast. And guess what? Like most people who have that goal to surround themselves with smart people find it really hard to actually make that happen. Like a lot of people pay lip service to it, but very few people actually take steps. But almost every single person who has a podcast has an almost 100% success rate of having conversations with really smart people because it's a forcing function for you to do that. Or let's say you're like, you have a slightly more vain goal. Let's say you want to hobnob with celebrities and hang out with famous people all day. Like you could start a company that, I don't know, there's a good one, Cameo, where it's like you pay celebrities to record a video to send them to like your friends and family for their birthdays and stuff. You could start a company like that. And then guess what? Now like your entire like mission every single day is to talk to celebrities and get them to sign up to your platform. And guess what? You're going to live a life where you're hanging out with celebrities all day because your business forces you to literally do that. And I've just met a lot of people who've like just had these sort of arbitrary lifestyle goals. Oh, I want to get healthier. I want to get fitter. I want to break into halls of publishing and become like a published author. And instead of doing it the sort of traditional way, like going to school to learn or reading a bunch of books or just trying to like network your way into it, they've started businesses that force them, give them almost an excuse to go really hard at doing these things. And they end up living this really cool lifestyle that's related to what they're doing. Another one would be like, I guess I mentioned Peter Levels, who's like a digital nomad, right? He can Mm -hmm. travel anywhere in the world. And no matter where he goes, he has like a bunch of digital nomad friends who all know who he is and all want to hang out with him and all want to party with him no matter where he goes. Like that's not something that 
you could really even buy with money, to be honest. That's something that you almost have to start a business in that space if you want to have that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. And it's it's interesting that you mention like people creating something as an excuse to live out some sort of you know, lifestyle purpose. Like I do tell people that, oh, this podcast is my excuse to talk to cool people. And I know so many people that do stuff like that. And I don't know if you feel that same way about the Indie Hackers podcast, but I bet. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, like not really networking, being like too lazy to do that kind of thing. And now it's like I have a ridiculous number of friends and acquaintances who are all very smart, talented people who call me up like regularly and I call them up regularly. And it's, you know, I didn't, it doesn't feel like I'm putting effort into networking. It feels like I'm just doing, running my company. And this positive side effect is like suddenly all this extra good stuff is occurring. So I I think I'm probably repeating myself here, but it's just such an underrated tool for lifestyle design is, is starting a business. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I know people that sort of start newsletters or blogs to explore these new ideas and to hold themselves accountable. I'm going to learn about philosophy or, oh, I want to talk about running or swimming or something like that. And so just this idea of building and learning in public, I think transforms how, you know, people view themselves, but also how other people view them. Totally. In that, I mean, I'm also interested in what you think about this other idea that I heard about, which is called maximizing weirdness. So I, I think I, I have a blog. And when I was thinking about the blog, I was thinking about it gives me an opportunity to write and think ideas that I wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity to share with other people mm-hmm. just in conversation or something like that. Yeah. And so I, I first got the language to represent that when someone presented this idea of maximizing weirdness to me. And so the example they gave was that it was like, he went to a hard rock cafe in Colombia or something. And there was all these people in like leather jackets and they'd all met on the internet, which was a bizarre thing. And they were all, it was like, they were all like fanatics of this one kind of movie. But anyway, the example just goes to show that whatever you're interested in, there is this community on the internet for you. And because the internet like removes those geographical constraints that have defined people for literally all of human existence, Mm-hmm. that you have the opportunity to become whatever person you want to be mm-hmm. via the internet. So I'm just wondering what you think about that sort of transition. Yeah, I like that idea. I think I have two thoughts about it. The first thought is more of a strategic one, which is that with any business, you can think of any business business having four parts. The most important part is like the problem that you're solving. So that's what is the problem? Who has the problem? What are they doing to solve it today? How much do they care about the problem, et cetera? Like this whole quadrant you should think about distribution, how are you going to reach those people, your business model, how are you going to make money? And then the part that everybody obsesses over, but it's probably like the last thing you should think about, which is like your product or your service that you're going to do that's going to hit all of these other three sort of check marks. And I think for that part, the number one thing you should think about is being unique. You can Mm -hmm. call it being weird. Because at the end of the day, just because you're solving a problem doesn't mean everyone cares if there's a million other people solving the problem the same way. But you can solve a problem everyone else is already solving in your own unique, weird way. And people will really like it. Like maybe the problem is that people want to feel connection because they're lonely and like we're all social animals. We always want to be parts of tribes and communities. Mm -hmm. Um, That's cool. There's a million different ways to solve it. And maybe the way you want to solve it is having like a meetup where people who love Elvis Presley can like dress up like Elvis Presley. (laughs) Uh, And the more unique and weird you are, I think the better you're going to be for a very particular niche because there's just not going to be anything else like that. They're not going to have any alternatives. It's going to be like, you're the only thing. So I think strategically, there's this balance. It's almost trade-off where you're trying to find like the perfect like Goldilocks, like not too hot, not too cold. Like how weird should I be to be able to like appeal to a niche in a way where there's no real alternative for them, but where I'm still broad enough that I can grow my market and appeal to enough people to build something interesting. 
I thought a lot about that in the early days of indie hackers where it's like, there's just a lot of people building companies. Is there really room for a new sort of like moniker for certain types of people building certain types of companies? How specific does it need to be? How broad does it need to be? How weird does it need to be? And it's just something I think every founder should think about. So strategically, I think that's my one viewpoint there. Then I think more like sociologically, what's happening is the internet is just a channel for infinite distribution. In the past, if you wanted to go to a store, like your only options were the stores that like existed within a 60-mile radius of you, whatever stores right. in your city. And the downside to that isn't that it's just like inconvenient to get stuff, but that it's there's just not that much variety. Because what happens is like every city's got like their one like baseball card shop, and every city's got whatever. But let's say there's something that like only one in like a million people. Well, is there going to be a store for that in your city? Probably not, because unless you live in a city of 100 million people, there just aren't enough customers there to sustain that shop. Right? Mm-hmm. Even in a city of 100 million people, only 100 people would ever frequent that store, and so they probably still wouldn't build that store. Whereas the internet makes everything infinitely distributable. Anyone on earth can reach any website, which means you always have a customer base of like 7 billion people, or if you're an English speaker, like 1.5 billion people or something, which means that like even really weird, unique things that could never have existed in real life um, we were constrained by physical distance, now suddenly have an audience. And if you have that one in a million idea, let me type out the calculation. What is that if you have one and a half billion? That's 1,500 people, basically, mm-hmm. who can use your thing, even if it's only one out of a million. And so that's enough people to build lots of companies. 1,500 customers is probably enough to sustain lots of different businesses and lifestyles. And so I think there's just more of an opportunity for weirdness to exist in a way that there never was in the past. And I think that's super cool because it means that even as people have all this anxiety about, oh, there's going to be so much competition and the thing I want to do is already taken, the answer is no, it's not. You can get crazy weird and there are enough people on the internet where you can still find a customer base and do what you want to do. Yeah. Um, and I'm just interested in sort of what examples of people taking this opportunity to be weird on the internet, if you have any good stories around that. Yeah. So I don't have the best stories off the top of my head. Well, some things I think are interesting. Like I think in general, the creator economy is really good about this because you have lots of writers and podcasters and YouTubers. And the weirdest thing ever is anyone's personality, right? Everybody's personality is unique. There's no one who's going to have the same personality footprint as you do. And so there's just like an infinite number of examples where someone's writing a newsletter or a blog that's like, in many ways, not that much more valuable than someone else's newsletter or blog, but people subscribe to them because it's their personality. But more concrete examples, like my friend Lin Tai has a company called Key Values, And it's basically a way, it's a platform for finding a job, essentially. And except for the main difference is that really, instead of finding a job by how much they're going to pay me, you find a job by what are the things that this company values. And the reason why she set it up like that is because that's just how she wants to find a job. She didn't really do a bunch of research and figure out, is this like a trending thing? Is this important? Does it resonate? She's just like, here's what I want. And then she like put her own personality into it. She's like, here are the 50 values that I think people should choose from. And her website is like all these like flashy colors that like most people wouldn't like. And you know what? Most people are not going to use her website to find a job. But a lot of people are. And it's because it's her own weird thing. And I think a lot of founders get obsessed with this idea that, no, I have to build like the best possible tool objectively to wipe out all the other tools. But I think with the Andy Hacker mindset, you can be like, no, I'm just going to build like the weirdest approach to solve this particular problem. Guess what? There's going to be a million other companies that help developers get jobs too. But I've got my own one little weird take. And it's enough to make her like 400 grand a year just working on her own weird website that is her own approach. So I think that's a cool example There's also, um, I'm scrolling through some of the examples of people I've had on the Indie Hackers podcast. I mean, it's, it's, they don't sound that weird when I get into it, but like I just interviewed this guy, Traff. He like made some cool icons for iOS and just made a ton of money in a month. But again, he's a designer. It was funny. I want to interview him. His background was like black, this weird blue light 
shining on him and his website's all black and his like profile pictures everywhere are black and these icons that he made are all black. And, like, it's just this thing, just this designer likes making things all black. And right, it's like a little yeah. goth and a little like macabre, but it just looked sleek on iOS and some subset of the internet really vibed with that. And does that mean he has the best icons? No, but like he has his own unique personal style and he just doesn't care. And so I, I'm a huge fan of people doing this weird stuff and just building the business that reflects their personality rather than is completely engineered to be visionless and to always just do what customers want because it's hard to stand out that way and it's hard to have a consistent personality and it's hard to really resonate. I, I want to ask you one last question if you have a okay. second, yeah. just about it, in the realm of personal advice, but also I, I think it relates to a lot of things you do with indie hackers. And that question mm-hmm. is just as a college student, right? There seems to be, we learn engineering, we learn different theory principles, and then we go and then we get geared up and we apply them to a job for mm-hmm. X number of years. Um, and one of the great things about Daniel Vassallo too, is that he really talks about, he said, it was great to be paid a lot of money, but the longer I stayed in the job, my motivation to create different things yeah. decreased. And so I, I've seen a lot of people, right? John Collison, for example, encourages people to take divergent and weird life paths. On his website, if you look, he says, if most of your friends think what you're doing is normal or what you plan to do is normal, that's probably a bad sign. And so I'm just wondering what advice, I I know it's difficult to ask people for advice because typically the response I get is just like, why do you think I'm qualified to give advice? But (laughs) any sort of lessons or, or anything that you could offer on that idea? Who's the advice for? You or other people? People my age. We'll say people my age. People your age. So college people. I'm 19. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think in general, number one, my advice is always be skeptical of advice. Um, In particular, be skeptical of advice that doesn't ask you what situation you're in and what your goals are. Because every piece of advice has trade-offs. Almost anything you can do has trade-offs. Honestly, if you don't want to be weird and you want to do things that everyone else thinks is like normal and, and fine, that's actually really good advice for a lot of people if those people prioritize stability if they prioritize predictability, if they prioritize like safety, then that's what you want to do. If you're not someone like that, like I'm not someone like that, I don't want a predictable, stable life. I'm like a 33 year old, like single dude, like driving around on road trips, starting crazy companies that like fail a lot of the time. It doesn't bother me. (laughs) I'd rather live a more interesting life. And that's just like a trade-off that I make. So I think number one, be skeptical of advice. Number two, I think when you're young in particular, what you're going to find is that most people stop learning. The vast majority of all people just stop learning. One of the best things I think you can do in terms of lifestyle design is when you start businesses that are going to require you to learn things. Don't just start businesses that like utilize your existing skills. Start businesses that like utilize skills that you wish you had. When I started my first, like I learned to code by starting companies. I'm like, oh, I want to start this website. I don't know how to code. So I have to literally learn how to code to start this. And it's going to be really shitty and crappy in the beginning. I need to make this website look better. So I have to literally learn how to design to make this website look better. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, what happened in the beginning is like all my websites looked like shit and they barely worked because I wasn't that good at coding. And after 10 years of doing that, like I'm a pretty good coder and a pretty good designer because I was forced to over and over learn these skills. And it also de-risks starting your own companies, to be honest, because when you come out of it, what's going to happen is everyone else who stopped learning in college, they're going to like have a very limited skill set. And what you're going to have, if you ever decide to stop, start stop starting companies and go get a normal job is this really broad, interesting skill set where you're really good at things and companies are really like excited to have you. I had a situation where I like stopped starting companies in my twenties at some point and just wanted to get like kind of some remote contract work for a year. And I was nervous. I was like, how am I going to shape up to all these other software engineers? I don't know how good they are. I just haven't really worked on a team before. And then it turned out when I actually went to these jobs, because I was just better than everybody because no one else had been pushing themselves to do it. And I think that's consistent among founders. So I would say prioritize learning, 
Start companies, act as a forcing function <laughs> to get you to learn stuff, and be skeptical of taking advice that doesn't tell you, doesn't that assumes what your goal is going to be because your goal might be different. Well, all right, Carlin, thank you so much, and I really appreciate yeah. you making the time. Uh, no and, and awesome advice. Hope to share some insights potentially on the blog, and and you know maybe send you a copy of the book when it's all yeah, done. Cool. Good luck. Feel free to DM me if you need any clarifying answers or you have any other questions. All right. Really appreciate it. Take care. Yep. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care and we'll see you next time.